0: Welcome to Fertility Friendly Food. I'm your host, Stephanie Velarkis, accredited practicing dietitian and nutritionist and director of The Dietologist, an Australian-based practice focused on optimizing fertility through nutrition. This podcast will bring you snack-sized episodes for you to learn, grow, and be inspired by the latest research, facts, and practical lifestyle tips about eating well for optimal fertility, helping you cut through the confusion and myths to take back some of the control on your fertility journey, one bite at a time. Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Fertility Friendly Food, the podcast. As you know, I'm your host, Stephanie Velakis, accredited practicing dietitian and expert fertility dietitian and nutritionist and founder of The Dietologist, a multiple award-winning virtual nutrition practice dedicated to all things fertility, pregnancy, and reproductive health. And this is the third out of four episodes on our PCOS mini series in honor of PCOS Awareness Month. And I'm so excited to have Dr. Natasha Andriatis, who is an integrative fertility specialist, join us on the podcast today to talk all about what you can be doing proactively about your PCOS management to enhance your chances of conceiving. Dr. Tash and I go way back. She single-handedly probably helped me start my career as a fertility dietitian after my training. So I am always eternally grateful for her role in my career to date, her mentorship, and I can't believe it has taken this long to get her onto the pod And without any further ado, I will throw you over to the interview with Dr. Natasha Andriatis. Enjoy. Welcome, Dr. Tash, to the Fertility Friendly Food Podcast. We're so excited to have you on. So, for those who aren't familiar with who you are and what you do, can you share a bit about?
1: uh well what do i do i am a passionate women's health advocate i am a gynecologist fertility specialist and uh, i spend my days talking to women about their health and trying to make some women pregnant yes some, some couples pregnant mm-hmm. um egg freezing you name it um I suppose recently what I've been interested in is uh, the use of medicinal cannabis in helping manage endometriosis. I'm a prescriber, um, and that's been a really interesting aspect of um, Mm -hmm. treatment. So that's what I do. Amazing.
0: I would love to have you on and we can talk about CBD and endo because it's such a hot topic in the endometriosis world. So. Noted for future. I'm <laughs> oh, very happy to talk about it, yep. And you're based in Sydney, for those tuning in from
1: Sydney. Yep, Sydney, inner west. Beautiful. Uh, Newtown. My office yep. are in Newtown and uh, I do all fertility-related treatments through City Fertility at the Gateway Building at Circular Quay. A beautiful building, if you've never been,
0: everybody. Um, first time I walked into that clinic, I was like, it's it's Fertility Clinic in the sky. It <laughs> <laughs> sort what built- it feels like, because it's quite, quite high up. It is so. Yeah. So over the years, I know you and I have had many a conversation about reproductive health and hormones and different conditions, but one that we've discussed a whole bunch is PCOS, and September is PCOS Awareness Month. And I do know that for a lot of people living with PCOS, it often breeds a lot of worry and fear about their current or future fertility. So can you tell us a bit about the impacts of PCOS on ability to conceive or delays to conception?
1: Yeah, well, its biggest impact is an ovulation, whether that's... Um, contributing to irregular periods or no periods. So it's it's mm. the essence of PCOS is the inability to ovulate regularly and hence it's difficult for women to time intercourse or insemination or whatever whatever it is they're trying to do to mm. help them see. The other issue is that women with PCOS tend to be, but this isn't all every woman, but they tend mm. to be overweight or obese. Mm. And that independently has an impact a negative mm-hmm. impact on on conception, fertility, um, mm-hmm. you know, increased risks of miscarriage, congenital abnormalities in a developing baby. So they're the two main things. Uh, mm-hmm. There are lots of other things that go with PCOS, I. acne, excess hair growth, mm-hmm. endometrial hyperplasia, that is pre-cancer, and that mm-hmm. also can contribute to, that the endometrial hyperplasia can contribute to issues with conception. Mm. Um, the acne and the uh, excess hair growth are, are separate issues. Mm. You know, low, low self esteem. All of those things are kind of separate, not related to specifically infertility and inability mm. to conceive. So it's it's ovulation that's yeah. the that's of it all.
0: Yep, yep, yep. Absolutely, that irregular or unpredictable ovulation or just infrequent ovulation just gives you so many fewer chances compared to people that are having a regular twenty eight. 26- to 30-day cycle, for example.
1: That's right. And, you know, everyone says, oh, 28-day cycles are standard. Well, 15 to 20% of women have 28-day cycles. There's mm. a variation in, in, in cycles from 21 to 35 days. Uh, everyone's different. Every month's going to be different. Mm. But when women have polycystic ovarian syndrome, it's quite distinct that they have irregular Mm. and tend to have longer cycles, Mm. They might not have a period at all. They might not get periods at all. Mm. They might get two periods a year. Yeah. Yeah, so very, very variable.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'm not sure I've ever met a client with PCOS that had very short cycles before. Well, maybe I have, but it's rare. It's not common. It's usually very long, 35-day-plus kind of cycles. Correct, yep. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of people that I meet with PCOS, you know, automatically feel that their diagnosis means they must seek fertility treatments before even attempting to um, try to conceive, like using ovulation induction or IUI or IVF. Is that true? Does that mean you automatically jump straight
1: to fertility interventions if you've been diagnosed with PCOS? No, we don't recommend that. We recommend lifestyle modification as a first-line therapy. Mm-hmm. And that's where people like you come into it, Steph. Yeah, we talk about uh, you know food. Yeah, they're eating uh, a lot of people. Not everyone, but a lot of women with PCOS tend to have insulin resistance, mm. and uh, we often need to work with them on weight loss. Mm. Um, in managing anyone with PCOS, I just go back to basics, and the basics apply to every patient I see, regardless of what their issues are, whether it's PCOS endo. It's mm. your life in general. You know how many hours are you sleeping? Are you sleeping well? Um, you know what are your stress levels like?
2: Mm. And
1: uh, we know that these like two these two very fundamental lifestyle um, aspects are key uh, when it comes to fertility and even weight loss. So if you if you yeah. are overweight, if you do have PCOS, um, you know are you snoring? Because women Mm. with PCOS are more likely to be snorers. And if we fix your snoring, um, Mm. then you're more likely to lose weight. Your insulin resistance will improve. um, And, you know, other things come into it like um, alcohol, smoking, the dietary Mm -hmm. aspects we mentioned earlier. Mm. Uh, Exercise, of course, is a huge part of it. And so lifestyle modification is is really key. Um, And we prefer that because it works um you know even losing five to ten percent of your your weight may help contribute to more regular cycles and the ideal outcome is that patients get pregnant spontaneously on their own without any medical intervention mm. a lot of patience is required by the patient mm. um, and a prescription for lifestyle modification is something that patients are not used to necessarily they go to a doctor expecting that doctor to write them a script for something or mm. you know, go away, take this, it'll work, or yes, let's go straight to IVF. Of course, sometimes it's very obvious that patients need IVF treatment because in mm. many women with PCOS, if she's wanting to conceive, we need to see her partner, right?
2: Mm-hmm. So if
1: we see her partner, and 40% of the time we know there's a male factor, if we see her partner, he's got extremely low sperm count.
2: Mm.
1: That's likely they're going to need IVF, sure. Mm. But you would still look at the lifestyle modification concurrently with that woman. Mm. Sometimes it's very obvious that a patient needs to go straight to IVF, or if she's got tubal blockage.
0: Yes, of uh, course,
1: IVF applies. But the mm. baseline, baseline modification, lifestyle modifications apply to everyone. Yeah. Some women have the luxury of being able to focus on lifestyle modifications longer, i.e., months or years. Mm. Um, older women, for example, like a thirty-year-old woman with PCOS. Mm. has has more luxury in time than a 40-year-old, for example. Mm. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And I think that's where that that time piece comes in so much more so where there's, and I always think, you know, lifestyle modifications, you know, nothing changes exactly overnight, although a good night of sleep will have you think otherwise. But, you know, you need a little bit of time for things to sink in. And I think if you've got this huge time pressure of like, this needs to be better in two months time. Otherwise I turn 40 or, you know, whatever milestone it is in your mind. That kind of pressure is, I'd find sometimes is kind of unhelpful to the goals because it's just, it just becomes like another quote unquote fad diet, even if the principles are not fatty because you've got the time crunch and it's just, it becomes such a stressful experience. So, if you can give allow yourself more time absolutely allow yourself and a lot of people get diagnosed with p c o s quite young um I know for a lot of people I see in their adolescent years or early twenties um so often there is a lot of time where this information is known but uh, lifestyle modification isn't happening until there's a delay to conception, which is sad
1: yeah i mean I think there is also overdiagnosis of p c o s yeah i i um I see this a lot in when a woman comes to me and says, oh, yeah, when I was 16, I was diagnosed with PCOS. I'm like, really, how was the diagnosis made? Mm. Often they are misdiagnosed. Mm. Carries with them for most of their reproductive life. So mm. um, it's always important to revisit an initial diagnosis of yeah. something. Yes, because is it correct to say that a lot of
0: people who are younger who just have plenty of eggs may appear polycystic
1: ovarian appearance on an ultrasound scan? Yeah, well, we don't really consider um, looking at ultrasounds in younger women to mm. make a diagnosis of PCO. Yeah. We need to practice caution in that because we expect mm. that a, a person who is less than 20 years of age is going to have more than 20 follicles on her ovaries. That's normal. Yes, you know? Yep. Yep. That's yep. when the metabolic, I, um, you know, insulin resistance, uh, testosterone levels are more important. You know, younger, younger girls tend to have their acne often because of the hormonal changes in teenage years, but also their diets can be, you know, not as optimal, lots of sugar. Yep. I, I, I often, I often double, double, uh, question. I mm. say, uh, pcos diagnosis made at 16 i go really
0: mm. yeah yeah always worth revisiting i mean i that nearly happened to me when i was 16 i had really irregular periods i had bad acne i had polycystic ovaries on ultrasound they're like yeah pcos and i was like no i don't <laughs> I, was mm. like, I don't know how i knew that at 16 i was like no i don't there's no way i've just had bad i've had acne for as long as i, I knew and mm. yeah um and my androgens are always fine and all that stuff. So, I mean, it can it can very easily happen for sure. In preparation for preparing for a baby, if somebody knows that they have PCOS or perhaps suspects that maybe they do have PCOS, how can they be proactive about their management to help improve their chances of conception?
1: Yeah, going back to what we said earlier, um, the, the lifestyle stuff, really. and. Yeah. Um, Preparing for pregnancy a a year out from when you actively start trying, Mm. Uh, you know, making all those changes, as you said earlier, doesn't happen overnight.
2: Mm.
1: And um, reading, reading lots of information about PCOS, reading books,
2: Mm.
1: reading, uh, you know, know, research done through things like PubMed. Mm. Blogs are okay. I just find people get kind of lost in all of that. But also getting support to make those changes. So seeing a dietitian, seeing a naturopath, mm. acupun- acupuncture can work beautifully. Mm. Um, it is, it is one of those conditions that kind of branches out into many aspects of, of the complementary world. I find mm. in the OS, mm. uh, which is what is nice about managing it as well. Mm. Because often uh, it is a, a team approach. As uh, some people will go, I've oh, got all these supplements and all this acupuncture and the dietitian. All this stuff's costing me money. Well, yeah, because you're actually getting a service. You're getting <laughs> uh, professionals giving you their advice, and mm. um, people have to really look at what are they valuing in their in their in their treatment. Um, mm. and it's important to value people's professional opinions. Um, you know, I say to people. If you're going to see a dietitian, see them for one, at least once or twice. You're never mm. going to lose out. You're never going to regret a, a session. You're mm. going to learn a lot. Mm. Um, so I think people need to just be mindful of that, Um, that initially it can seem all very daunting and costly, but, hey, you know what, going through IVF is costly. And, and daunting. Costly. <laughs> so do your best to try and conceive naturally, do your best to try and get those cycles to be as regular as possible, where at least mm. they come every six to eight weeks and you can better monitor them with ovulation predictor kits or my favourite device at the moment, which is the Myra tracking device. Yeah. Um, you know, that's what you want to or do. You, 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 I don't think people should put pressure on themselves to get a regular 28-day cycle. That's not realistic for some and many women. But yeah. try and get those cycles that come every three to four months to come every six to eight weeks if possible, you know? Yeah, and you like double your chance of conceiving right there because you just got
0: more cycles, more ovulation exactly. opportunities. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, at least more opportunity to potentially conceive. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and having I, sex two to three times a week at least, mm-hmm. spacing that out if, if timing um, and using ovulation predictor kits is not appropriate or easy. Just have regular sex mm-hmm. three times a week, space it out.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think as well, you know, one of the one of the biggest things that I see with people with PCOS is, is that uncertainty of their fertile window and and feeling uh, like questioning their tracking <laughs> in terms of like trying to optimize it. So are your tips to track with um ovulation prediction kits and Myra or something similar or
1: basal body temp or a combination? Whatever works for the patient and doesn't stress them out too much. Yeah. um, Little things like looking at your underwear and checking cervical mucus, you know, that can be really helpful. Yeah. Um, I do feel that devices like the Myra device in terms of an ovulation, that is an ovulation predictor kit using urine. Mm-hmm. Um, very good. I've had a lot of patients conceive using that device. And mind you, I'm not plugging it because I'm getting money from them. I just really. Yes, genuinely recommend yeah, it. I, I yeah. have it and I use it to track my ovulation Yeah, because I'm, you know, approaching 50 soon-ish mm. and uh, I still like the fact that I get my periods. <laughs> and, um, yeah. Um, and look, the basal body temperature, it is interesting to do, I think, for a few months, but I find for many people it is not that practical and can get a bit stressful. But then there are other women that love it, you know, and they'll pull mm. out all these beautiful charts. and yeah. and, um, and look, and I say whatever works for you. For yeah. some women, they find it too stressful. And so mm. they just try and focus on having sex three times a week. But then, of course, that doesn't tell you much about what your ovulation is doing. Mm. Um, that's more about just trying to conceive in the moment. And, um yeah, I say for people, whatever doesn't stress you out.
0: Yeah, that's always my pointer as well. So if it's stressing you out, it's probably maybe having a negative impact on ovulation rather than positive. Um, yeah. So we've got to be mindful of that. What's the... With PCOS, some people have, you know, a bit of a funky LH-FSH ratio, the luteinizing hormone and the follicle-stimulating hormone. Does that come into play with devices that track urinary concentrations of LH, for example?
1: Yeah, it blows the picture and doesn't make it clear
0: Mm. that
1: um, they're actually ovulating. So if you've got a baseline LH level that's high, Mm. um, you're not going to get a clear change on the ovulation predictor kit. So for those people, it can be very difficult Mm -hmm. to track ovulation with those devices. But if you've got the Myra device, you'll get Mm -hmm. probably a a much better Mm -hmm. uh, tracking method because it actually gives you a number, a numerical figure that then you plot on a graph. Yeah. Very different to, say, um, using the Clear Blue device.
0: Yep. Where it just gives you a bouncy smiley yeah,
1: know, smiley. Or a line yeah. or whatever it or is. Or a line. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's more binary rather than um yeah, quant- quantitative. Awesome. Sorry, that was some off script questions, but
1: very helpful. <laughs> no, like, good, 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 good. I like those. Yeah, we like
0: that. We like chatting about ovulation, don't we? Yeah. Um now people with PCOS who may end up. You know, proceeding to IVF for what, whatever combination of reasons—time, male factor, other. There's a myriad of other reasons. Lots of people with PCOS also have endometriosis. They've got the double whammy. There's other things at play. They tend to be at a higher risk of being overstimulated with IVF. Is that right? And why is that? And what does that? What are the symptoms? What's that experience look like? And hyperstimulation.
1: Well, generally speaking, women with PCOS tend to have polycystic ovaries, but we know that not everyone with PCOS has polycystic ovaries, but the majority of women do. Yes. So that means that they have a lot of potentially recruitable small antral follicles, and these follicles uh, make AMH. Uh, A lot of women have this test done prior to fertility treatment, the higher an AMH level. Uh, It correlates with a higher follicle count. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, Basically what happens is when you have ovarian stimulation, um, we know that women with PCO, uh, polycystic ovaries, even if they don't have PCOS, polycystic ovaries per se, Mm. um, they tend to have what we call a higher VEGF, which is a ventricular endothelial growth factor in the follicular phase of their cycle. Mm-hmm. And that means that they have greater blood flow to their ovaries. So, greater blood flow to ovaries means that you're going to get a higher delivery of the gonadotrophins and the drugs that we use to stimulate the cells responsible for follicular growth. Mm-hmm. And as a consequence of that, you're more likely to get OHSS, ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome, mm-hmm. which is a constellation of symptoms and signs. In response to not just IVF, but any time a woman gets gonadotrophins, i.e., FSH and LH, and that can lead to death in very, very rare cases. But yeah, um, Yeah, more likely these women will develop abdominal distension, so feeling really bloated because of fluid, excess fluid in the abdomen, excess fluid on the lungs. They can get short of breath. Uh, They can lose their appetite. Issues with emptying bladder. They get dehydrated. They can get headaches. They can end up with liver dysfunction, kidney dysfunction, uh, and end up in hospital really sick and unwell. And remember when I was training at RPA, you know, you you used to see these cases quite often, but now this is Mm. a lot less common Mm. because the drugs that we're using for IVF, the IVF protocols are generally much smarter. They're much safer. Mm. Um, We use different drugs and different ways of, say, triggering someone pre-egg collection to minimise the chances of this happening. So this is what we call a medical or iatrogenic complication of IVF mm-hmm. and it's probably the most serious complication. Um, mm. Of course, hitting hitting a, a, a blood vessel at egg collection would not be ideal, mm. um, uh, but that doesn't happen thankfully that often, but it is a lot more common to see OHSS, mm. but a lot less commonly now than when, say, IVF first took off. Or even, even, you know, 15, 20 years ago, or even 10 years ago. Mm. So, um, um, an aspect of that is that a lot of patients may have more mild ovarian hyperstimulation syndrome. Mm. It's severe OHSS that is more serious that ends up people in hospital. Yes. Um, but the more mild form of it is, you know, some bloating. Sometimes the doctor may choose not to proceed to a fresh embryo transfer. Uh, yep. in order to enable those ovaries to, you know, settle and those hormone levels to kind of wind down a little bit to minimise the chances of that woman getting sick because if you put back an embryo, yep. that ends up implanting, it will release mm. HCG, which then mm. makes the whole OHSS picture worse. Delightful.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I have. Um, I have witnessed a few cases of quite severe OHSS, (laughs) and it's it's always uh it, it i the clients that report it it i think they're genuinely quite traumatized by the experience in those severe cases where they end up in hospital and i have heard of people that had ohss years and years ago and they have you know school-aged children, they're like, I'll never do another retrieval round of IVF because mm. I'm just too scared, um, even though the drugs are better and, you know, we've got all this additional stuff um, in place. So it,
1: it can certainly be a very, you know,
0: scary experience for people as well.
1: Yeah, traumatic is probably a good word I'd use as well. Mm. And it is sad when people experience this and they do distinctly say, I will never go through that again. It is Um, sad. Guess what? You know, most of the time IVF isn't traumatic, and uh, most people can go through it three or four times with no trauma. But when you hear that, it is sad because it shouldn't Mm. be that way. It is, but I think you know, every
0: body, literally body, is going to respond differently, right? To to things. Yeah,
1: Yeah. that's right. But distinctly with PCOS. It is a risk factor for OSS. And so that way when the doctor does the treatment plan, they they have that in mind and in the back of their mind and making decisions based on that risk factor. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Very important.
0: What are your top pieces of advice to give to someone listening with PCOS who's planning to or is currently trying to conceive? I
1: I think it might be a summary of some of the things we've touched on throughout this episode. Yeah, all those things we talked about earlier, you know, getting your baseline health, um, optimal and also, you know, getting your partner on board too. Yeah. So whatever you're doing for yourself, i.e. not drinking, mm-hmm. minimizing, minimizing alcohol, at least not, not definitely not smoking or vaping. Um, all of that, the sleep, the food, the excess of weight loss, all of that should apply to your partner as well. Mm. But of course, not all people going through IVF treatment have a partner. They may mm-hmm. be going to sperm. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, PCOS also applies to those who are going through egg freezing and mm-hmm. those risks of OHSS, et cetera. So, um, I, I think practicing patients is a big part of it as well.
2: Mm. Uh,
1: but also having other things, complementary treatments at the same time, acupuncture can be mm-hmm. really a nice complementary treatment to go through at the same time yep uh and you know taking your supplements is recommended taking the metformin is recommended Mm. uh you know metformin is uh is an adjunct treatment but there is very good evidence that it can help women with pcos yep minimize the risk of ohss as well Mm. Uh, but going back to you know less invasive therapies for conceiving with pcos metformin is up there yep um yeah so lifestyle lifestyle modification that's my biggest take-home message when it comes to PCOS yep and track the cycles <laughs> yeah, tracking your cycles that's right yeah yeah so
0: the stuff that we talk about on this podcast all the time everybody straight from dr tasha's
1: mouth there you go <laughs> yeah downloading those apps uh, yeah um, recording Absolutely. your cycles you know um not going off memory oh yeah there's nothing
0: worse That's than going cool into it I'll, I'll
1: get my period the 1st of every month and you're like wow who are you <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember I had a PE teacher in high school and this is when we're learning about periods and period cyclicity and stuff like that i went to an all-girls school and she goes i get my period on the fourth of every month at 8 a.m on the dot and Mm -hmm. i was like and so that became like what i thought was normal because that's Mm -hmm. what she said and i i was like oh my period's whack (laughs) I was like, but no it doesn't need to be you know clockwork there's there's going to be some natural variation Mm -hmm. even within people that have what's deemed a somewhat regular cycle right
1: that's right and it's not unusual for people who don't have pcos to not ovulate once or twice a year where it goes a bit strange (laughs) yes i
0: think especially in the last couple of years with everything that's gone on i've noticed so much like of those errant kind of cycles where you just get a bit of a you know, oh, I didn't ovulate this month. And I was like, mm. what's wrong? What do I need to do? And I'm like, oh, it could just be that month. Just, mm. you know, you got sick. You had a virus, like such is life. Yeah, it's you just, had COVID. You had yeah. COVID. you had the yeah. COVID vaccine. Yeah, you know? it's just yeah. like, okay, we just, we move on. <laughs> it's fine. As long as it's not happening every month
1: in perpetuity, you know, it's okay. We just That's right. That's exactly next right. Month. And, and hence the value of recording your cycles because it's something that if it happens regularly month in, month out, then that that's when you have to pay attention. But if it happens it was a one off, you don't. I don't feel need to rush to, to see your gynecologist.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: It can be sometimes, sometimes a little bit.
0: I think you've got people that are overly sensitive to it, to a small change, and you've got people that are not abreast of any changes either. And you kind mm. of get these two ends of the spectrum. But we kind of want to look for patterns, right? So keep that's keep right. that in mind. Well, thank you, Dr. Tash, for sharing your time and knowledge and expertise with us and our listeners. Can you share with us how people can connect with you? You've got your own podcast. You've got an awesome Instagram page. We'd love to drop all the links in our show notes, but
1: do you want to just give them a quick shout-out whilst I have you? Thank you. Uh, yeah, my Instagram page is Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and uh, my podcast that I haven't put up on—I haven't put up one for ages. You just reminded me I need to do this, Steph. Yes. Um, again, yeah, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, the Fanny Mechanic podcast. Yeah. Um, and I think I had to put up one with you that I'd, I'd done a long time ago on vegan going vegan. Oh so, yeah, yeah. uh uh, anyway you've given me a good kick up the bum today (laughs) (laughs) you have a great podcast i love your podcast and a
0: lot of people that i work with listen to both of our podcasts there's a lot of cross pollination there so there's good (laughs) there's good uh congruency between our podcasts for sure so definitely tune in and there's a big back catalog there so if you've not listened before definitely go back and Listen to Tasha's podcast. Because if you like this, yeah. you probably like the Funny Mechanic podcast for sure.
1: Well, you've been on it a few times, Steph. You're a bit
0: of a veteran. I I am, I know. A couple of things taken me this long to get you on to ours. It's been too long. <laughs> I need to get you back for um endometriosis and C B D for sure.
1: Yeah, medicinal cannabis. Very yeah. interesting topic. There um on my podcast I interviewed a guru, um Sinclair, and uh, he he did a gave me a great kind of rundown of medicinal cannabis for endo endometriosis so yeah for anyone listening uh who wants to know more about that go back to that podcast on on my the fanny mechanic podcast to uh check that out and uh thankfully now it's becoming a lot more accessible for people yes uh for those people with pelvic pain you know it's not used for fertility peace no yeah. it's not used for fertility it's not something we would recommend if someone's going through fertility treatment, but if you're a woman who has really bad pelvic pain, it is an option. Yeah, absolutely. And quite
0: an effective option too from the data that I've been looking at. Mm, definitely. Mm, very exciting times. Well, thank you again, Dr. Tash. We really appreciate it. And for everyone who's listening, leave us a follow, subscribe, rating, review, share it with a friend or family member, and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye, everyone.